Now, Paul is drawing a clear distinction. He says, before we met Jesus, we were under law. In other words, God's basic stance toward us was to demand things from us. That's the hallmark of the law, the repeated phrase that occurs over and over. Uh, in the law is the phrase, thou shalt. The responsibility to perform and to produce and to behave is squarely on us. As long as we are under law, then that's the way the rules work. Now, Paul's argument in the early part of Romans, as long as we are under law, then the only thing that can result is guilt and condemnation, and we come under the wrath of God because we simply cannot and do not measure up. But Paul says that in Christ, the rules have changed, and we are now out from under law, no longer operating according to this rule, but now there's a new basis of operation in which we are under grace, in which God has found a way to fully acquit us, to declare us completely righteous, to wholly and completely accept us, simply on the basis of our faith in Christ, and on that basis alone, completely independent of our behavior. So Paul has been arguing all the way through the book of Romans is that we are set right with God, we are accepted by Him totally, 100%, without reserve, without condition, simply because we believe, not because we behave. Now, if that's true, and it is, that we are accepted by God absolutely 100%, simply on the basis of belief, and not on the basis of our behavior, then our behavior can't affect that. This is a critical thing to understand. That if we behave, we cannot add a single thing to that acceptance of God. We can't increase in any measure His acceptance of us because it has nothing to do with our behavior. Now, it also works the other way. That if we misbehave, that cannot diminish or detract in any way from God's acceptance of us. It is complete. Our behavior cannot add to it. Our misbehavior cannot in any way diminish it or detract, detract from it. You see what a glorious thing it is to be under grace. What a glorious freedom there is in that, how it sets the heart free and cleanses us from guilt. But then that raises the very practical question is, well, why bother in that case to behave? What's the point of behaving? Why not simply give in to sin and enjoy the pleasure that it offers? Because we know it cannot affect our status with God. It cannot endanger our acceptance with Him. It cannot endanger our eternal future because that's settled on the basis of faith. So the very important question is why bother to behave? And I know people, all of us have, who have argued this way. They know that God will forgive them. They're prepared to do something which they know is wrong, but they will tell you that they know God is going to forgive them. And so they go right ahead and do it. Well, if we're accepted purely on the basis of our belief, why not? Why not go ahead and do that? Now, that's the very practical question that Paul wants to address in the rest of this chapter. Now, I want to do, uh, just briefly before we move on, is to compare the question that Paul raises in verse 15 with the question that he raises in verse 1. In verse 1, if you go back there, you see that what Paul says there is, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? I think the question that Paul is raising there is, should we bother to change our lifestyle 
because where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. In other words, before we met Jesus, we lived a lifestyle of sin. Now that we have been set right with God, utterly apart from that, is there any reason not to continue in that lifestyle, that pattern of sin? Now that's the question Paul answered in the first half of this chapter. Here in verse 15, however, Paul simply says, shall we sin? In other words, should we give in to sin even one time because we are under grace instead of under law? Now, his uh, answer is quite direct in the end of verse 15. May it never be. God forbid, perish the thought that we should yield to sin even one time on the basis that we are under grace and not under law. Now, let's see why he argues that way. He begins in verse 16 by saying there's something that we need to understand and realize about sin. It says, Do you not know... That when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So he says in verse 16, there's something that I want you to know about sin and, and what it does. You need to understand this. You need to realize this because this is the foundation, Paul says, of my whole Argument. There's something that I want you to know. Now, when I was in high school English grammar classes, we learned to diagram sentences. What you always do when you diagram an English sentence is look for the main subject and the main verb. Now, if you look carefully through verse 16, you will see that the main statement in the verse is found right in the middle. You are slaves. And that's Paul's point. Regardless of what choice you make in life you are going to wind up a slave. That it is an illusion to think that we have a choice between slavery and freedom. As Ray Stedman put it, we are made to be mastered. And the only choice that any of us have as people is which master we will serve and be enslaved to. That is the only choice that we have to make in life. Now, a slave had no control over his destiny. That was determined by someone else. That's why Paul, I think, uses this metaphor. He says, when you make that basic choice in life, you set into motion a certain chain of events that are outside your control. You can't control what happens any longer once you've made that basic choice. Your master now is going to determine those choices for you. So that's what he wants us to know, is either way we move, we are going to be slaves. As Bob Dylan said... You've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. Now, this, I think, is a very helpful corrective to a good deal of modern thinking. I remember particularly when I was in college, and this is still true today in the thinking of the world, that many people think that the problem is that there are too many rules, that there are so many legalistic rules that people are inhibited, they oppress, and they repress. And the secret then, the solution, is to get people unshackled from these rules, to set them free. People are inhibited. They're bound up. We need to introduce them to liberty and uh, rid ourselves of these antiquated and outdated standards of behavior. Now, the world has tried that. And in a couple of real critical areas, as all of us are aware, the world is learning the hard way that that freedom has simply resulted in a slavery of a different and more terrible kind. 
When I was in college 15 years ago, both in the area of sex and in the area of drugs, the watchword among my contemporaries was freedom and liberty. And uh, they were against restraint uh, and for experimentation and uh, pleasure and exploration. Those were the watchwords. And yet today, 15 years, just 15 years later, our very own culture, the world, those who have no interest in spiritual things, are uh, realizing that uh, this freedom in the heterosexual community has left us with herpes, which is an incurable disease you carry for the rest of your life. In the homosexual community, it's left us with AIDS, which is not only incurable, but inevitably and invariably fatal to those who are afflicted with it. And right now it is chic, it's in vogue to just say no to drugs because people have realized that this, what appeared to be freedom, simply resulted in a devastating slavery of a different sort. Now Paul is going to go on to argue that what appears to be slavery, on the other hand, really results in freedom. That's the way he's arguing here. Now what he's saying about sin is it's just like that, that sin is something that you think you have a grip on But you discover quickly over time that it has got a grip on you. Now, the two slaveries that Paul contrasts in this chapter are contrasted in that one slavery results in death. It enslaves and it kills. The other slavery, Paul says, not only enslaves, but in contrast, it produces life. That's his basic contrast. Now, he contrasts in the rest of this chapter two different kinds of slavery. In verses 17 and 18, he talks about the slavery of the soul, the slavery of the inner man, the real you, the real me. And then in verses 19 through 22, he discusses the slavery of the body, the outer man as opposed to the inner man. Let me read 17 through 22, and I want you to look for that contrast as I read, and I'll try to make some emphasis here so you pick up the difference. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. I think what Paul means by that, by the way, in verse 19, is that he's using slavery as a metaphor to make his point clear that Paul's favorite metaphor when it came to describe our relationship with God is the sonship metaphor. But because of our weakness in understanding this concept, Paul has resorted to a clearer metaphor, the slavery metaphor, to make his point. For, in the middle of verse 19, just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. Now, in verse 16 and again in verse 19, Paul has used the verb to present. Uh, Your translation may say yield or offer or some synonym like that. And what that word means is to present yourself to someone 
or make yourself available to someone or place something at someone's disposal. Now, what is being placed at someone's disposal in verse 16? Well, read it. You present yourselves. In other words, it's you, it's us, the real me, the real you that's being presented or placed at someone's disposal in verse 16. Now, in verse 19, what is being presented in verse 19? You presented your members as slaves, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. Now, also notice the verb tenses, especially in verses uh, 17 and 18 compared to 19 through 22. All the verbs in 17 and 18, you notice, are in the past tense. Uh, You were slaves of sin. You became obedient. You were committed. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So in verses 17 and 18, Paul is talking about something that has happened to us in the past with our very selves, the real us. But if you look in verses 19 through 22, you'll find that three times in those verses, Paul uses the little word now to indicate that he's talking about our contemporary experience as believers. Um, Middle of verse 19, so now present your members as slaves. Uh, Middle of verse 21, the things of which you are now ashamed. Verse 22, but now having been freed. And notice also there's a difference in the kinds of verbs that Paul uses. In verses 17 and 18, he's simply using verbs which are making a statement of fact. In uh, English grammar, we call this the indicative mood. He's simply stating things. You were slaves of sin. You became obedient. But what is the main verb in verse 19? Present your members. That's an imperative or a command. So in verses 17 and 18, Paul is stating something that has already become true of us in the past. Now in verses 19 through 22, he's making an appeal to us to make certain choices in the present, in our contemporary experience. Well, what is he referring to in verses 17 and 18? I believe what Paul is rehearsing for us there is that we were slaves by nature to sin. We were born into sin. We were born with an inbuilt slavery to sin. Just as a black child born in 1845 would have been born into slavery, so we have been born into slavery. But by means of a second birth, we have been born into a different kind of slavery to a new master. I think clearly what Paul is referring to here is the moment of conversion. When all of us in this room who, be, who placed our faith in Jesus ceased our slavery, the slavery of our real selves to sin, and became instead slaves of God. Now Paul says, thanks be to God that this is true in verse 17. So he gives the credit to God for bringing about this change in us. And he points out that this obedience was from the heart in the Romans as well as in us. In other words, our desire is to be God's slave. This is an option that we have willingly chosen, and from the heart we long to belong to him, soul and body. So what Paul is saying, then, quite simply, is the basic issue of slavery, to whom I am going to belong, who is going to be my master, that issue has already been decided. That was decided in the past when I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result, Paul says, we have become, in the end of verse 18, slaves of righteousness. Now, I want to pause and just 
have you think with me about that phrase just for a moment. What does it mean that we ourselves have become a slave of righteousness? Well, that means as believers that in, in reality we cannot help but act in righteousness. We can't help ourselves. We're slaves to righteousness. I'm sure all of us have had this experience at one time or another where there's something we thought about doing that was wrong, but we realize we simply can't do it. We just can't do that. I want to. It's appealing. I might even get away with it, but I can't. Well, what are you reflecting? That you, in fact, have become a slave of righteousness. I remember a friend of mine who was counseling a young man who was struggling with some of the demands of the Christian life. And uh, my friend suggested, well, why don't you simply walk away from the Lord? Why don't you turn your back on him and just pitch the whole thing in? And he thought for a minute and shook his head and says, you know, I, I just can't do that. Well, that's because he had become in his inner man, in his soul and spirit, a slave to God, a slave to righteousness. I think another uh, manifestation of the fact that we are slaves to righteousness in our souls and our hearts is that we hate it when we sin. You ever notice that? Doesn't it bug you when you sin, when you give into it? Well, why does it anger us and frustrate us when we do? It's because we have become slaves of righteousness, and we hate it when we give in to it. Remember when I was working as a sort of a uh, minor league disc jockey in uh, Dallas when I was going through seminary, we had some antiquated turntables in the studio that I worked in, and it took about three-quarters of a turn for the records to get up to speed. So you had to be very careful how you cued those records up. If you didn't back them off about three-quarters of a turn, the record would just kind of whine in the gear. It sounded real ugly. And I remember one time distinctly, I made that mistake a number of times, and one time I had just come out of doing a brief news and weather report, and I was going to be real slick and just kind of segue right out of my weather right into the next song. So I finished my weather report, flipped the switch, and sure enough, I'd miscued the record, and it wound up into speed. And I was so frustrated with myself, I forgot that my mic was open, and I said, I hate it when I do that, you know? So, so. But that's what happens when we sin. We hate it when we do that, because we have become slaves of righteousness, and we can't help ourselves anymore. So that's Paul's metaphor here, is that in the past, this has happened for each of us, we have been purchased from one slave owner, we have been set free from his dominion, and we have been transferred in our hearts and souls to a new master to whom we now serve, willingly and from the heart. Now, what Paul says is the problem is, is that even though the basic issue of slavery has been decided for all of us, and I doubt if there's anyone in this room that wants to go back to the slavery to sin that you knew before you met the Lord, the problem that Paul points out is that we still can present, not ourselves any longer, that issue's been decided, but we still can present the members of our body to our old master to do things for him and to use the members of our body to serve, on occasion, the old master. Now that is the real issue. To use a simple contemporary parallel, it would be as if you had changed jobs. For a period of time, you were working for one boss and drawing your paycheck from him. If you quit that job and began work for a new employer, basic issue of your employment and who your boss is has been decided for good. And yet your old boss might call you up and ask you to do certain small projects for him. 
and then you would have a choice about whether or not to do that. Now, that's the kind of thing Paul is saying here. All of us in this room who believe in Jesus have got a new master of heart and soul. And yet, all of us have this experience where the old master from whom we've been purchased and set free calls on us and tempts us to use the members of our body to do things for him. And that's the issue that Paul is dealing with. Now, let me reread verses 19 through 22 and see if I can retrace for you Paul's argument. Just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you had no obligation to act righteously. Therefore, what benefit or fruit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Now, as I mentioned before, the main verb in verse 19 is an imperative. It's a command. Paul says, present your members. In other words, Paul is asking us to make a choice there. Now, that means in the area of sin, what God has done to us as believers is given us the option to choose. That God in his love for us has chosen not to compel us to behave in any and every circumstance. He's given us that choice, and he appeals to us to offer our members as slaves of righteousness, but does not force us to do that, because he knows what that kind of obedience under compulsion produces. Prison camp is a perfect example of this. In a prison camp, any deviation from the rules of the camp is met with immediate punishment. So observance of the rules is compelled People simply have no choice but to obey. Well, what kind of atmosphere, what kind of relationships does that create? What does it produce? It produces an atmosphere of hatred, animosity, bitterness, resentment, simply no love for the prison guards that enforce those standards. There's no respect either given or returned. Now, God knows that, and he doesn't want to enter into a relationship with us like that. He could have set it up that way, that every time we gave in to sin, a clump of hair would fall out or one of our teeth would turn black and rot at the gums. He could have set it up that way, but he knows what that produces. He wants us to make willing choices, voluntary choices to present our members to him because we choose to, not because we have to. Now, Paul's argument, as I think you can detect from the simple reading of this, is extremely practical. In other words, Paul's appeal here is to simply take a look at what happens when you, as a believer or an unbeliever, when you, as a believer in particular, present the members of your body to sin. Take a look at what happens. What do you get out of that transaction? What benefit is there in that for you? It's extremely practical. Paul says if you take a hard look at where sin gets you, you will simply not want to present your members to it again. That's his argument. Now, he contrasts two processes in this little section. One process which is set into motion when we yield our members to sin. The second process which is set into motion when we yield our members to righteousness. 
Now, his point about sin, to sum it up in advance, and then we'll retrace this, is that what he says about sin is that it enslaves and it kills. That's why you shouldn't do it as a believer. It won't have any effect on your status with God, but sin will enslave you and it will kill you. And therefore, don't do it. The other kind of slavery, the slavery to righteousness, also enslaves us, but it produces life. That's his point. Now let's first of all trace the process that is set into motion when we yield our members to sin. That's where it starts. That's the first step in verse 19 to present our members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. Remember the verb to present means to place at sin's disposal or to make the members of our body available to sin. So what Paul is talking about here is when we're faced with an opportunity to use one of the members of our body to do something we know we shouldn't do. Maybe in this week you will be given the opportunity to use your brain as a member of your body to think thoughts about someone that you should not think or to nurse a grudge or nurse resentment against someone. Or you will be faced with the temptation to use your eyes as a member of your body to look at or to read something that you should not. You'll be faced with the temptation to present your ears as a slave to sin by listening to something that you should not listen to. You're presented with the opportunity to use your hands to do something that you know you should not do. Presented with the opportunity to use your feet as members of your body to go somewhere where you should not go. Presented with an opportunity, perhaps this week, to use your sexual organs in a way that you know you should not do. Presented with an opportunity to use your tongue as a member of the body to do something that you should not do. Now, when you present those members to sin as a slave is when you give in to that temptation. It's not the temptation to do it that's wrong. We all feel those urges and impulses. It's when we yield to it, when we give in and go ahead and use the members of our body in that way, that we set into motion this process. Now, the second step in this process, the second stage in the process, he says in the middle of verse 19, is that when we do that, it results in further lawlessness. Did you notice that? When you do this, it results in further lawlessness. So what he's saying quite simply is that one sin leads inevitably to another. And all of us have had this experience. When you give in the first time, it makes it so much easier to this rather than its master. As Jesus said, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. If you remember the potato chip commercials of a number of years ago, bet you can't eat just one. Well, sin is just like that. Bet you can't commit just one. It always leads to further lawlessness. Now, if you've had this experience where you're dealing with some habit or behavior pattern you really want to change and you have a temporary period of success and then you weaken that one time and give in, what characteristically happens, at least to me, is that I go on a splurge. This, the wheels fall completely off and I just kind of completely collapse under that and it results in further lawlessness. A friend of mine was telling me this last week that in the drug community they have uh, what are called chippies. And these were people who felt that they could simply dabble with crack or dabble with cocaine and not get hooked. They would just take a chip. They wouldn't go whole hog. And he pointed out that a lot of people who used to be called chippies are now called dead. They thought they could dabble in it and they got hooked 
and it killed him. I don't know if you remember the story about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll was a man who had developed this magic potion that could turn him into this diabolical figure, Mr. Hyde. And he experimented with this, and just for fun and excitement and adventure, he would imbibe this potion and turn into Mr. Hyde. And one night, he was trying to decide whether or not to take the potion or not, when he discovered to his horror that completely against his will, he was turning into Mr. Hyde. He thought he had a grip on it. It wound up having a grip on him. Now, I do want to say a word before we move on, just briefly, to those of you that are struggling with some kind of besetting sin, some kind of habit pattern or sin or compulsive behavior that you just can't seem to shake. And the word I have to you is, please, whatever you do, don't give up. That what we're seeing in this section of Romans is that the only answer to sin is Jesus. He is the one who will set you free. He will liberate you. Uh, so find others around you to pray with you. Find a support group, if possible, who identify with your struggle and can support you and pray with you and continue to seek the grace of God to gain control. And do not give up. There is no hope in anyone but Jesus. And the other thing I would encourage you to remember is just what Paul said at the end of Romans 5, and it is true, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Don't forget that. Every time you sin and struggle and fail, God's grace increases superabundantly to cover that. So hang in there and don't give up. You'll eventually experience liberty from the Lord. Now, I think what we can also see in this area of giving in to sin is it not only results in further lawlessness in us, but it often results in further lawlessness in others. This is particularly true with uh, using the tongue as a slave to unrighteousness. It leads to further lawlessness in us. For instance, a man I know uh, told what he thought was a little white lie. He started counting and discovered to his chagrin that he had to tell 42 additional lies to cover the first one. Speech has a way of contaminating others. came across a little poem this week that illustrates this. I said a very naughty word only the other day. It was a truly naughty word I had not meant to say. But then it was not really lost when from my lips it flew. My little brother picked it up, and now he says it too. Or as uh, someone once said, out of the mouth of babes come things we never should have said in the first place. <laughs> but an argument illustrates this. If you've had a recent argument, you can uh, substantiate this for yourself. I know what often happens to me is someone will say something to me that may wound me or injure me just a little. And so my response is to say something just a little cutting, to sort of even the score. And their response is often to return that volley. I escalate my response in return, and pretty soon we've got a full-scale skirmish in place. And premarital counseling, this is one of the things we often do, is, is talk about a couple's communication styles. And generally what we do, we'll talk over the last argument they had. And almost always we can find a spot in that argument where either one of them could have called off the war by saying a kind word or a gentle word or an understanding word. But once that process gets started, we find ourselves giving into it. It results in further lawlessness. Relationship between 
Uh, Lady Astor in Winston Churchill illustrates this. Perhaps you've heard these stories before, but they bear uh, repeating. They had a rather acrimonious friendship, and uh, Lady Astor at uh, one point said to Sir Winston, she yielded her tongue as a member, as a slave to impurity, and said to Sir Winston, Sir Winston, if you were my husband, I should poison your tea. And Sir Winston yielded his tongue as a slave to impurity by saying, Madam, if I were your husband, I should drink it. (laughs) Then another time, uh, Lady Astor yielded her tongue as a slave to impurity by saying to Sir Winston, uh, in disgust at a social function, Sir Winston, you are drunk. Sir Winston yielded his tongue as a slave to impurity by saying to Lady Astor, Yes, madam, what you say is true. I am drunk, but tomorrow I shall be sober, but you will still be ugly. So that's Paul's point, is that one sin leads inevitably to another, and it enslaves us, it traps us. Now, the third thing Paul points out that, this, that sin produces is shame in verse 21. The things of which you are now ashamed. In modern parlance, what it produces is low self-esteem. came across a quote which indicates the shame that all of us feel when we sin. I thought this captured uh, my own feelings when I sinned so graphically. man says, I felt utterly, utterly sick. And inwardly defiled. I was appalled at what I had done. I felt diseased, contaminated, self-condemned. I cannot put into words how the shame and sense of sinfulness flooded over my soul. It was springtime outside, but in my heart it was a cold, miserable, gloomy day. The sun seemed to have gone in. The buildings looked drab and empty. The world was cloudy and hostile. I walked with my head on my chest and my spirit broken. I felt sick enough to vomit on the street. I was truly appalled and felt certain my future was ruined. My job in jeopardy and every man must be ashamed for me. I felt a terrible need to tell someone what I had done, to confess and to weep over it all. I cannot fully express today the darkness in my soul for the next hour or so until gradually my sense of the Lord's presence was recovered And I went back to my office a sober and chastened man. It's Paul's point. Sin produces shame. So why give in to it? And the fourth thing he says it produces in end of verse 21 is death. The outcome of those things is death. Death in the scriptures is simply the absence of God's life, an absence of peace and harmony and contentment and happiness. And in its place, we find boredom and guilt and disappointment and anxiety and frustration. The outcome of those things is death. Paul says if you give in to sin, you set into motion a chain of events that leads to death. Now, obviously, in our case, not eternal death. That issue has been settled. But we can experience the dimensions of death that we can experience in this life. Oscar Wilde was a playboy of the early 20th century, and he illustrated this very thing, that sin leads inevitably to death. It says, The gods had given me almost everything, but I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately went to the depths in search for a new sensation. 
I grew careless of the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me and passed on. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character, and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber, one has some day to cry aloud from the housetop. I ceased to be Lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul and did not know it. I allowed pleasure to dominate me. I ended in horrible disgrace. Now quickly, in conclusion, Paul traces a process that begins when we yield our members to righteousness. In other words, for instance, if we are in the middle of a discussion which is about to degenerate into an argument, and instead of yielding our tongue as a slave to impurity to say something cutting or unkind, instead we yield it to righteousness and say something which is kind or gentle and turns away wrath. We said in this into motion the second process. The second step, Paul says, both in verse 19 and 22, is that it results in sanctification. In other words, every time we make that choice to yield a member of our body to sin, we become more sanctified. That is, more like Jesus. Our character becomes more and more to resemble His. And just as it got easier to sin when we yielded our members to it, so it becomes easier to act in righteousness the more we do it. It enslaves us in the same way. The third result, by implication in contrast to the shame that we feel, is a sense of self-esteem or self-worth. What Paul is suggesting here, I think, is that the real key to a healthy self-image is not ability and it's not accomplishment, it's righteousness. That's what produces a sense of self-worth. If you want your children to grow up with a healthy self-image, help them to become righteous boys and girls. That's the secret. And then the fourth result, the outcome in the end of verse 22, is eternal life. That is, we experience the very life of God now in our contemporary experience. The same life that we will enjoy with Him forever, we participate in now in our contemporary experience. Now, Paul sums up his argument in verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He contrasts the wages of sin with the free gift of God. Sin, he says, pays wages. You earn it. You deserve it. What it pays off is death. It will kill you, enslave you, and kill you. And Paul says if you take a good look at the kind of paycheck that you draw when you sin, you realize it simply is not worth it. The momentary pleasure is simply not worth the paycheck you have to draw at the end of the week. But in contrast, the free gift of God, His life, His power, His forgiveness, His sustaining strength, is given to us in order to make us like Christ. When I was in high school, I had some friends that picked grapes every summer to make spending money, and they invited me to come along one year. I said, great, sounds good, I can use the cash. We got up at 4.30 in the morning, we were in the vineyards by 5. We worked hard until 2.30 in the afternoon, hot, dusty, spiders, you got paid by the number of trays you filled. These were little paper sheets that were laid out between the rows, and every time you filled up one of those, you earned seven cents. The best day I had in three weeks, I made $4.90. Now, the next summer, I got a good summer job. My friends called me again in the beginning of August and says, Hey, you want to come pick grapes with us? I said, No, thanks. 
got a much better employer, much better wages. I think I'll stay with what I've got. Now, that's basically Paul's argument. Take a look at where sin gets you. Uh, after the pleasure is over, what does it produce? What fruit do you have to show for it? And you realize that you do not want to sin. First half of Romans 6, Paul has said we don't have to sin anymore. Because of our identity with Christ, we do not have to sin. In the last half of chapter 6, he says, if we understand what sin does to us, we won't want to. I'd just like to conclude with a quote from C.S. Lewis that again bears repeating if you've heard it before, in which I think he's saying the same thing that Paul is here. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and loneliness.